Well, good morning. I hope you're all doing well today. I am thrilled to be here and thrilled because Palm Sunday and Easter is just a couple weeks away. I'm also excited because today we are going to begin a brand new two-week series, this week and next week, series called Up and Down. I'll get into that in just a minute about what we're going to be doing, what we're going to be talking about. But before we do, will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we cannot live by anything except the words that come from Your mouth. You have the words of eternal life, and we pray that You will feed us with them right now. Thank you for Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. I'm convinced that there is a part of God's creation here on earth that has a very special place in His heart. <clears throat> it's not a place that He's just proud of, though He is, but a place that He truly enjoys. I believe that God loves mountains. Not only are mountains created in such a way that they draw us in, no matter where you can see them from, your eye cannot be taken off of them. But God even refers to mountains, or a particular mountain, Mount Zion, as His holy city. His heavenly Jerusalem, the place that we're all going to spend eternity in Mount Zion, where God loves mountains. It also appears to be, in reading through the pages of Scripture, his favorite meeting place with man. Again and again, he meets man up on the mountains, reveals himself, is present to them, gives them instruction. God loves mountains. And I believe that Jesus knew that too, because Jesus was often going where? Up on a mountain to pray, sometimes all night long. To be with His Father. To be in His presence. To receive a word from Him. Not saying anything except the word that He received from His Father to anyone else. I believe that God loved mountains. And Jesus went up on a mountain one particular time that I would like to tell you about right now. It was evening, and he took with him three of his disciples. James, his younger brother John, and their friend Peter. And he went up on this mountain. And something very strange happened, something that had not happened before. As he was praying, his face started to change. Physically change. Even his clothes began to change, and they began to exude bright light. The story is uh, emphatic that the disciples were half asleep up until this moment. And as they looked on Jesus, as He's begun to radiate this light, they noticed that two other men had appeared with Him. And they began to talk with Jesus. And it's fascinating to me that at some point in the conversation, 
the disciples pick up that these aren't just two ordinary men. This is Moses, the great prophet of the Old Testament who had led God's people out of Egypt, and Elijah, the prophet whose spirit was representative of all other prophets in the Old Testament. Fiery, would not quit. I I can't imagine what it would be like for the disciples to look on two great heroes of the faith there with Jesus, their rabbi, as he's being transformed in front of them. At some point in the conversation that was about when Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem in not too long a time from then, and how He would suffer at the hands of men, and how He would depart from this earth. At some point in that conversation, it came to a conclusion, Moses and Elijah turned to go. And Peter, not wanting the experience to end, interrupts and says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. If, if it pleases you, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. But as he was saying it, he's interrupted by the appearance of a very bright cloud. And that bright cloud begins to descend on all who are present. And the disciples were terrified. And as they entered this cloud, they heard a voice, unlike any other voice in the universe, say, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And as quickly as it happened, the cloud disappeared, and with it so did Moses and Elijah. And it says that all that the disciples saw was Jesus. This is a very mysterious story. At a minimum, however, we can understand that here was Moses, representative of the law of God that had been given on Mount Sinai. Not only did he receive the law, but he wrote down the whole account of the story. And he's testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. And Elijah, representative of the other prophets, testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. And three men, James, his brother John, and their friend Peter, there witnessing this event, testifying that He is the Messiah. And to cap it all off, God the Father there saying, Jesus is the Messiah. And more than that, He's my Son. And Peter, be quiet for a minute and listen to Him. My Jewish friends have told me that Jesus actually, excuse me, God actually saying, This is my son whom I love, listen to him, are taken from three different sections of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And they believe that all three sections of the Hebrew Bible would testify that Jesus is the Messiah. And here we have God quoting his own book, testifying, Jesus is the Messiah. But there's more to the story than what God is actually speaking. In fact, I believe He's trying to communicate something much more than the words He's using. It says that Jesus was transfigured. A physical transfiguration. We don't use the word transfigured all that often. You might feel a little bit more comfortable with the word transformed. But it was something very physical that was happening. In fact, it says that His face shone like the sun. 
And even his clothes became as white as light. Some accounts say as white as lightning. And I I really appreciate that there's some artists out there who have tried to depict what this event could have looked like. I've looked at several of them, and uh, I brought one of them with me this morning. I don't know who this artist is, but I really like this depiction of it. For a couple reasons. One is you notice, and I think this is biblical within the story, that, that Jesus does not have light shining down on him, and he is reflecting it as if he were the moon. No, he is like the sun that he is radiating the light. If the light was shining down on him, I think you would see that Moses and Elijah's backs would be lit up, and yet we see with their faces turned to him and their backs to us, we see that Jesus is radiating light. Isn't this mysterious? There's something more here that I wish I could wrap my brain around, and I've tried to imagine what that could have been like. But I want to know God, and I want to know when He shows up to say something publicly about His Son, what's happening between the two of them? I mean, a father and a son relationship Maybe you didn't have such a great father. But we have something to learn here from a good father and a good son and a good relationship between the two of them. And I want to know, God, I know that you do too. And I believe that the key to understanding the significance of this story is actually by examining, even meditating as the Psalms would guide us, on the glory of God. Now, glory is unfortunately kind of a diluted word in our uh, vernacular today. It's been diluted. In fact, it can mean a number of different things. And some of them are not all that nice. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word glory. You think about what, what could be you know, glorious. But some of them truly are not things of God. And so I believe that a study of God's glory will lead us to an understanding of who God really is. Now, sure, we sing about glory a lot. We just did just a few minutes ago. And we pray about glory, and it goes something like this. You know, Lord, may everything we do you know, be done to the glory and honor of your name. Everything we do in word or in deed be done to the glory and honor of your name. And that, that's really good. And I learned that prayer when I was young. And, you know, I still say that prayer, you know, when I'm older. I hope that you will say some, some form of that. But doesn't that just roll off our tongues so easily? It's like, what is glory? What comes to mind? Well, I believe there's five truths. And today, that's what I'm going to talk with you. Five truths about God's glory. It will help us to wrap our minds and our hearts around the significance of the physical transfiguration of Jesus. And the first is that it's not something we give him. Now, before any of you object who've read your Bible and you say, well, doesn't it say, you know, to give glory to God and bring glory to God? Doesn't even Jesus say that, you know, let your light so shine before men they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven? Doesn't it say that? And, And that's exactly right. And that's so true. And we sing, to God be the glory, great things he has done. And yet we sing it in such a way, and we are referring to it in such a way, in a particular use that the Bible uses about glory. 
but there's another one. There is credit. Giving credit. Like a soldier who's gone to war. And through his efforts, his heroic efforts to save people or save resources, risk his life to bring everyone home safely, and he's welcomed home as a hero, and yet he has given glory. And we have some general who stands up and says, without this soldier right here, we couldn't have done it. And there's honor that's given to him and glory in a way that we are saying, Lord, we give You glory like a soldier who has brought us home safely from war. And yet God's glory is something else. Something altogether very different. In fact, Exodus chapter 24 says that the glory of God came and rested on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 5 talks about how the Israelites saw the glory of God and were surprised that they lived. Second Chronicles talks about the glory of God filling God's house. Isaiah 49 says, You, O Israel, I will show my glory through you. And even Jesus in Luke chapter 21, as He's standing before the chief priest, right before He is crucified, says, in a reference back to, to Daniel, He says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and with great glory. God is Spirit. We understand that. But His glory is actually something very physical. It's something that can be seen. It's something that can rest. It's something that can fill. It's something that can come with. Glory is something very physical. And when we give God glory, when we publicly acknowledge our gratitude and our thankfulness to Him for the great works that He's done for us, and in us, and even through our works, we're acknowledging, we're giving credit, all credit to God, that you are worthy of all recognition for what's been done in for me and through me. And yet when we do that, do we make God more glorious? No. No, you see, God's glory is very physical. It's not something that we have that we could even give to Him. Let's continue on. God's glory is understood only through experience. Earlier in this service, you heard a word that I believe that is um, well used in describing God's glory, and that's the word mystical. Now, mystical is not a word that we often feel very comfortable with in church. In fact, we just don't really even feel comfortable with it in Western civilization, period. It's an uncomfortable word because it just seems a little bit like unicorns and fairies and you know, things that move and, you know, we don't understand them or even believe in them. And I understand how you feel. That's kind of how I feel at times too. But I truly believe that mystical is very simply this. It is experiencing the divine, gaining knowledge of the divine that could have only been gained through that experience. 
on a simple level, very simple. Imagine trying to describe to a person who has been blind since birth what a color looks like. Now, if you've been blind from birth and you're listening to this, I cannot wait for the moment when Jesus walks you around heaven to show you the brilliant colors that we've not even seen on this earth. But imagine trying to describe a color, or even more this, trying to describe all the colors of a sunrise at the beach to someone who's never seen a color. Every word that you can possibly think of, every analogy and metaphor that you can possibly think of, it's not possible because you have to experience the brilliant colors which God has created. Or imagine in your saddest moment maybe of the loss of a loved one. And someone tried to explain to you what joy after that moment could be like. Have you ever heard a baby laughing? Just a little baby? This deep belly laugh? I'm telling you that in your saddest moment, if you heard the pure joy of that infant, little innocent child, it would break through that. And unless you've experienced that joy, it's not possible to explain. It is, it's somewhat mystical. And how much more then is the glory of God, the fullness of the glory of God, which He's given us you know, little glimpses of, or, or trying to describe the wind to someone who's never been outside. It's air rushing past you. That sounds boring. I don't care about that. But how refreshing it is. It's mystical. Moses. In Exodus 33, we're going to talk about this story more next week. But in Exodus 33, he's at one of the lowest points in his ministry. This is after he's seen the burning bush. After he's seen ten plagues in Egypt bringing the Israelites out. After he's seen water from a rock. After he's been up on Mount Sinai and seen and heard the presence of God. After he's seen all of this, and he's at one of the lowest points because he feels like Israel has already turned from God and that God's already turning from Israel. And this whole thing has just been just a couple months up to this point, and man, it's just going to pot. And he says to God, prays, nearly demands, show me now your glory. Do not send me to a place where I cannot see your glory. Show me your glory now because Moses understood that the glory of God can only be understood through experience. I want to read to you a passage uh, from Scripture of a person who experienced the glory of God and actually wrote about it. In fact, because God's glory can only be understood through experience, I want you to try to experience it now. Because you see, God has given us an incredible tool to be able to experience something before we've actually experienced it. Maybe not exactly how it plays out, but it's called our imagination. And somewhere around age maybe 11, we stop imagining. And, and so I want to invite you back to you know, that moment where the prophet Ezekiel looked up into heaven and he saw that the heavens were open. And he saw beautiful creatures that have, have never been displayed anywhere else. And they're in God's presence. And he describes them in great detail in Ezekiel chapter 1. 
But I want to read to you after his description of these angelic beings, his description of seeing the glory of God. This is in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. And upward from its waist I saw was like gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from his waist I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell on my face. Can you imagine what that moment would have been like? To see, at least in a vision, a partial image of the glory of God. It can only be understood by experience. And I'm so thankful for Ezekiel who saw that, who witnessed that, who went on to do things for the Lord for us. We wouldn't be here without Him. I appreciate the detail in which he recorded God's glory. God's glory can only be understood through experience. The second is that God's glory is concealed for our sake. You saw with Ezekiel, uh, and every other instance in Scripture of anyone seeing the glory of God, either in an angelic being or in the physical moving brightness and the light, the Apostle Paul describes to Timothy, this is unapproachable light. And yet, in every instance, when that is witnessed, men are in terror. At Jesus' birth, we see the angels appearing before the shepherds. And it says this, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The glory is something physical. It's something bright. And it's terrifying to man when we look upon it. And that's why I believe that with the presence of the Lord also comes a thick cloud to conceal the fullness of the glory of God before us. In fact, for a little while, God even allowed Himself in our minds to be put inside a tiny little box made by us. And it was to help us understand His presence going with us. But we weren't allowed to touch it or really even approach it because His holiness was so very great. And we were so very unholy that even to be near it, to be touching it, would bring death upon us. Not because God desired to kill us, but simply because His holiness, it was so infinite. And you probably learned that from Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark, right? You remember that moment where Indiana Jones and his, you know, posse, you know, were up against the bad guys, 
and they finally all find the lost Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, Indiana Jones is like, don't open it. You know, don't go near it. Don't open it. And, you know, the bad guys are like, no, we're going to open it. We're going to use this for our power, you know. And it's just this back and forth. And the bad guys walk up to the Ark of the Covenant, and they're about to open it. And Indiana Jones tells his group, close your eyes. And he opens, you know, gets opened up, and, you know, the, the main, like, villain in this story, his whole, you know, face just melts off. Because the glory of the Lord was all around them. Now, here's an interesting point. Indiana Jones was not a moral person. And the guy that he was up against was not just so evil that the glory of the Lord chose to kill him and not Indiana Jones. In fact, it was the ignorance of the evil person that killed him, not his evilness. And it was Indiana Jones' respect for the holiness of the Lord to close his eyes that saved him, not his morality. In fact, I believe that the clouds that is protecting us from the fullness of the glory of God is actually an early metaphor of God's grace upon us. Because knowing how unholy that we are, He would not subject us to looking on His glory prematurely. I think that's a beautiful image in and really an early understanding of God and what He truly wanted for us. God's glory is concealed for our sake. God's glory is also, however, revealed in doses that we can handle. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to follow along, it's uh, Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. Here Isaiah, in a similar moment that Ezekiel experienced looking up into heaven, this is what the prophet Isaiah sees. <clears throat> it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood seraphim. Each had six wings, with two covering their face and with two covering their feet. And with two, they were flying. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the whole house was filled with smoke. Here again we see the smoke, the cloud, but it's actually from the seraphim that we learn something very important about God's glory. And that while it's concealed for our sake, it's revealed in doses that we can handle. Look again at what they say. They say, and they call out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. We learn that God, through His creation, has been slowly turning on the lights, displaying the wonder of His glory all throughout His creation. It's Psalm 19 that says, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
the Apostle Paul says the heavens declare the glory of God, and he goes one step further and he says, the heavens declare the glory of God in such a way that man is without excuse to acknowledge that the glory of God has been revealed to him in a dose, in doses throughout his life and through creation in a way that he can handle because God wants his glory on display. God's glory is revealed in doses that we can handle. And the fifth truth about God's glory is that God's glory is what God is very passionate about. Now this is one that I've felt a little bit uncomfortable with. In fact, I think it's pretty common to feel uncomfortable with God exalting Himself as He does throughout His book. I mean, it, it just feels a little bit like, man, I, you know, you're sovereign and all, but you know, do you have to like talk about it all the time? You know, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Let me read to you again. This is Ezekiel chapter 36 later in this dialogue between God and Ezekiel. And God actually says that He is concerned for how His holy name is being used. And He tells Ezekiel this in Ezekiel 36, verse 22. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of My holy name, which You profaned among the nations to which You came. And I will vindicate the holiness of My great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which You've profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through You I vindicate My holiness before their eyes. I mean, who can say that? Let me give you another example of this. This is Malachi chapter 1, verse 14. God says to His people who have again profaned His holy name, the glory of who He is, and He's been trying to tell them that I'm going to show My glory to the rest of the world through you, and this is what you've done, but no. For I am a great King, says the Lord of hosts, and My name will be feared among the nations. It's the sovereignty of God that we don't really feel great about. Sure, you know, everyone wants a God that will not let everyone else do whatever they want whenever they want. But they do want a God that somehow will just at a minimum leave them alone. Because God's sovereignty in your life means that you need to do something different. And when you bind together all of these truths about God's glory, when you bind them all together from the pages of His Scripture and what we have just talked about, we understand that God's glory is not something that we could give Him. It's something that He always was and always will be. And when we acknowledge that publicly, He does not become more glorious. It's who He is. It's His very essence. It's understood only through experience and yet He's been slowly revealing it despite that it's concealed for our sake. It's revealed in doses that we can handle and it's what He's very passionate about because God is the author of all life. And so 
This is how I would try to bring all of that together. And, and it's a feeble definition for the glory of God, and yet it's something that I hope you can carry with you and that God can begin to work with as you walk about through your life. And here it is. The glory of God is His ultimate sovereignty and His infinite holiness on wondrous display in, in physical form. It's up on the mountain that we begin to see the revelation of God in His brilliant light radiating out of His Son. That's up on the mountain. Let me read to you one more passage that I, I believe helps us to understand the revelation of the transfiguration. Something we learn by imagining what this light could have been like. And all of those testifying to who Jesus is. But it's the Hebrew author that I believe actually expresses it very well. This is in Hebrews chapter 1. That long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, to whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Now, why do we talk about all that? And why do we go through all those steps to examine and to meditate on the glory of God. This is why, and this is why it matters to you and to me. It's because one day, you and I are going to present ourselves in front of God. And we are going to witness the fullness of God's glory. And it will either be the most beautiful wonderful, magical, incredible, indescribable experience, indescribable sight that you have ever seen. Because you're clothed in Christ. You're hidden in Him. You've been clothed in His radiance. Or, it will be the most terrible sight that you've ever looked on because of the infinite sovereignty, the infinite holiness of God displayed, and you will be truly exposed. Last year, about this time, you may remember, um, we had the, the solar eclipse that was coming. And what a big to-do. If we had only known to make those glasses in advance, we could have all made a fortune, and it would have been really great. And you remember there was a particular band across the United States that if you were in that band, that you could actually look upon the sun fully blocked out by the moon. But here in coming Georgia, uh, there was about 3% of the sun that was still visible. My wife and I had friends over to the house to witness this moment, and it was super awesome. And, you know, we put on our protective eye gear because the experts had said 
that if you don't put on your protective eye gear and you look up at the sun, even 3% of the sun staring at it can cause permanent eye damage. And, And it can be really painful and you may never recover from it. So think about that for a minute. If 3% of the sun, what it could do to you physically, how much more then could the fullness of the glory of God be to gaze upon it? I pray, I beg you to repent right now to turn your heart And allow Jesus to clothe you. Don't show up to the wedding feast underdressed. But instead, be clothed in the radiance of Jesus Christ, King of glory. There's more to this story, and I look forward to talking about it next week. But if you will, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this moment where up on the mountain you revealed to us your good pleasure, which was your son Jesus. And we caught only a glimpse of his glory and the radiance of his glory through this story that one day we will fully see. I thank you even more for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy and how even knowing the greatness of your glory, you have matched it in forgiveness and that you offer for us right now the opportunity to clothe ourselves in the light of Christ. I thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.